So I'm hoping that we're going to get some uh, really interesting challenges to play with. And if you guys have got something imminent, it doesn't have to be massive. It can be. I do like a meaty problem, as you well know, if you've followed my stuff for a while. But you know, if it's something imminent, like a conversation you're going to have tomorrow, and you can't quite work out what's not right. What's the one question you need to ask to shine a light on that dark corner that's going to get you in trouble? Is there a difficult conversation you have to have? Is there something that you have to try and make amends for? And you're trying to work out how not to end up in conflict and make things worse. I don't know if any of you have been watching the morning show. There was a a beautiful scene that we watched last night of a fantastic self-inflicted car crash. Um, uh, Someone had sent an email years before and um, it had been leaked. And all of us, they decided that it was a good idea to go on television to try and explain to the person that the email was about. And instead of taking responsibility and owning it and admitting they were wrong and what was wrong with the organization, then becoming defensive. Net result of that was they blew themselves up. How often have we made a decision with limited information because it was, it sounded like a good idea at the time, but in hindsight, if we'd kept looking, we'd probably have uncovered that there were some negative unintended consequences. How often do we see? parts of the organization being successful and in being successful they create a problem downstream for someone else they amplify a problem or they suddenly create a problem out of nowhere that never needed to exist in the first place you see this happening all the time because of poor thinking so any problem you like it can be imminent massive small big just get a, the wrong kind of feeling. I'm looking for five volunteers, get 15 minutes apiece, because the objective is to help you get to the one question you need to ask in order to unlock this problem for yourself. That's it. So it's going to take a brave soul. You definitely don't have to disclose any confidences. I don't need that level of detail. So you don't need to disclose companies. You don't need to disclose <laughs> products and yeah, anything like that. And you also, any time that you're not comfortable answering a question, just say so, and I'll back off. Don't make it easy for me. Okay, I'm going to volunteer. First, congratulations, Marcus, on the 500th anniversary. We're looking forward to the next 500th episode anniversary of Inquisitor's Podcast. My wife doesn't In my humble opinion, the best sales podcast out there. Say again? This is good to to emphasize again, right? (laughs) In my opinion, the Inquisitors podcast, listen up guys, is the (laughs) best sales podcast out there by far. Excellent. Thank you so much. Like Tamara said, it's generally viewed as being quite good. It's mainly my guests. I, I just largely waffle and interrupt, but you'll see that today. So a couple of ground rules. First thing is we've got 15 minutes per person. Tamara, what's the problem that you want to bring us? Okay, in a nutshell, uh, I am about to embark on a uh, cooperation with one real estate agency. 
I only had one phone conversation with the director. That was two weeks ago. The issue that I'm having is that he is very reluctant to discuss anything over the phone. And I'm not managing to do a UPC and to sort of, you know, agree things in advance. What they actually want is to tick the box because they have two trainings a year. You just come basically to another city where they're located, tell them what the proposal is, him and his owner, he's the director, so him plus the owner would be present. And then they decide whether that's interesting for them and then they'll let you know, which, which would actually be quite transactional, not really my process. But since he doesn't want me to call, if I send him an email, my concern is that he is not going to read my UPC. So, but I'm reluctant to go there and kind of do it on the spot, not know how much time I have, not being able to negotiate all of this in advance. So what would be the step? Okay. So what's the outcome that they want from engaging with you? This is the question I failed to obtain the answer to because they said we do not need somebody to, you know, ask us about our problems. We just need somebody to come and offer a training. We are going to do a training on the off-site location. It is going also to be a team building and one-day training, let's say, and that's it. So the question I have to ask you is why are you pursuing this piece of business? This is actually something that originally started back in February this year. I was contacted via LinkedIn by a guy who is a real estate agent in that agency. He liked my posts and he contacted me, informed his director that I'm somebody of interest. When you spoke to him and asked him for help to navigate the organization, what did he tell you? He told me that their procedure is basically to send them uh, information via email and then they decide. But I told him that my procedure is to talk to the director in order to obtain some information. Why are you still in this sale? I tried uh, talking to the director back in February. You're answering a different question. Why are you still in this Uh sale? You're investing Uh time and effort, opportunity cost. There must be a reason why you continue to pursue it. Is it because you're uh-huh. attached after having invested all this time and effort? Is it because you want, uh, you need the money? Or uh-huh. is it because it is in the customer's best interest or some other reason? I haven't really invested a lot of time. We only spoke briefly over the phone once and, well, let's say twice, but the second conversation took longer. And two, three SMS messages, basically. So not a lot of time invested. What I want out of this is the opportunity to to see how the real estate agencies work from the inside, because this seems to be an untapped territory, not many people giving training to them, which I also learned from uh, this real estate agent. Would there be a good reason why people don't spend a lot of time trying to train real estate agents? It's a legitimate question, Mm because... There are certain sectors that are very difficult to take money from because Mm -hmm. of the nature of the way those businesses are set up. For Mm -hmm. example, legal partnerships where there are many partners can be quite difficult to sell to because they all Mm -hmm. think you're spending their personal money, which you are. So they all have an opinion, much like assholes. Everyone has one. And the danger with this is that you end up with an awful lot of effort and time being put into a pursuit that maybe you shouldn't be pursuing. It sounds like they don't want to do business the way you want to do business. Uh So that's a red flag indicator. If 
you are able to deliver the training that you imagine that you're going to, what is it you want people to do, say, and remember as a result of having attended? Well, my goal would be, obviously, because they are seeing a drop in clients due to the raise in uh, interest rates, so lesser people are buying flats on credit and stuff like that. There is a problem in the real estate sector in Serbia. I also invested some time to investigate and see where the issues are. So my goal, essentially, would be to help them navigate the conversations with uh, with the prospects, their motivation, why they would want to buy and not get stuck in those long buying cycles. And this person, in the end, as we know, deciding to buy from another real estate agent. Okay. So tell me this then. With the research that you've done on the real estate market in Serbia, and when you thought about this question, which is, what's coming down the pipe that is going to affect my target market? How are they going to need to adapt? How are their customers going to be adapting? How can you build a bridge? so that you can help them adapt to those changing conditions and gain an unfair competitive advantage. If I were to do this hypothetically and potentially, I would probably have one-day training, so not a lot can be done in one day. What I could possibly help them with is to change their mindset based on not being a commodity, because every real estate agency basically operates according to the same rules. You know, they send proposals, descriptions, the flat, locations, blah, blah, blah. They rely on recommendations mostly to, to get a new business. So to change their attitude towards the market, towards the people, and to understand why they are pursuing a certain opportunity and what they can expect. If they cannot close this opportunity, better to know early on than waste time on somebody who is never buying this real estate agent told me on the training that he attended my training back in June that he has a house that he cannot sell for, let's say, six months. And it is some old house, a long history, some kind of historical heritage, I don't know, from the 20s. And he he just can't sell it. He's tried everything and it's still on the market. So I'm assuming they have more real estate like this, that they cannot sell, don't know how to do it. Interesting. When you say you assume... How? What percentage of their inventory is inventory they just can't sell for love no money? Well, I cannot answer that question because I only have spoken to Marco. This is the real estate agent who told me that he has this problem. How many problems other people have, I honestly don't know. Okay, so when you did research on the internet to investigate what came up? Lesser real estate is being sold. Actually, a lot of real estate is being sold, but people are not buying as much as they used to. They used to buy more on credit. Now, this is not so much the case. Who is buying? Who is buying and who is not buying anymore? We're talking individuals who are more reluctant to to invest money right now because the prices of the flats have gone up and the interest rates of the loans actually mean mortgages, credits for... So what, why is it that prices are going up? Is it because people believe in the Serbian real estate market? Is it because people can't afford to go into housing, so they're going into the rental market, and then that is driving up the price because landlords are buying properties? Or is it something else? I would say it's a combination. I mean, you cannot rely on, on the online articles to give you the complete background but and i haven't investigated that much but uh, from what i gather it's the general 
economic crisis, you know, impacting everything since the war in Ukraine and everything else has happened, just sort of uh, backfired on, on all the sectors, real estate as well. So basically, people who can afford to buy, they can buy for cash. This is what they they do, preferably. People who cannot actually afford to buy, they take bank loans. And this is something that there has been a drop in. So obviously now there's this sort of gap. They, they said they have seen a drop in, in, uh, in purchase in the last couple of months. Okay, and how do they see that affecting them over the next two to three years? Well, this is something that I'm hoping to ask the director if this ever happens, because I don't want to be, you know, assuming anything. I have no idea whether they have a plan or are they just going to go with the flow? Okay, so what's your hypothesis? If you had a conversation with the director now, what would you say to them? Well, I would ask him what their strategies for overcoming this situation as it is on the market at the moment. I would ask him what his position is for the next year. That's not a hypothesis. That's not a hypothesis. That's a series of interrogative questions, which is fine. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to get his attention, you're going to have to go with something that he perceives is valuable. Mm -hmm. Enters Mm -hmm. into his narrative and shines a light on a problem he thought he had fixed, but you're clearly defining it doesn't or it isn't, or that they're in denial about, or uh-huh. they didn't even realize they had. That's a particularly good one. Because uh-huh. all of a sudden, that creates doubt about the status quo, which is exactly what we want to do. The hypothesis, suppose the market still remains this way for another two or three years, and you need to compete much harder with our agencies to, you know, to reach the sales targets, what is your plan? How do you plan to overcome the general instability, to not be treated as commodity, to be able, for all your agents, to be able to hit their targets, get sufficient money, not decide to leave to other agencies? Okay. What is your If you were to take every word out of that that was unnecessary, what would you be left with? Suppose nothing changes, what are you left with in the next two to three years period? Are you happy with that? How do you think your your prospect will receive it? Well, my prospect is a high D personality type. So most probably he would say, we are a really great agency. We've been here for 20 years, no problem. Okay, we've seen a drop, but we can we can survive, not a big deal. It's like that everywhere. That is the market, that is the economy. So give us the training and let's just tick the box and go home. And you really believe that this is the same as the previous recessions that you've seen through in the last 20 years? I'm sorry, is this the question I'm asking him or are you asking oh, I'm asking I'm asking you, but it may well be the question you ask him. Well, that's interesting because somehow uh, in Serbia, we are used to all sorts of recessions since the 90s. It's always been some kind of crisis, you know, but uh, obviously there are ups and downs of the market in certain periods. Now it's a down. How is the real estate market going to be affected by your trading partners in the global economy and how the recession is going to affect them? Is that going to affect the Serbian property market? Well, it's certainly going to affect the Serbian property market, but the majority of that property market is managed by our governing party and our president. So basically, some really big ventures are go to their pockets directly. That's the realistic situation. 
the rest, which is, you know, which I don't know really the percentage of which is under their supervision and the percentage of which isn't, it's, it's a bit of a gray area. Can private equity funds invest in property in Serbia? Yes, but they're probably going to need some kind of agreements with the top layers of establishment, let's call it like that. Okay. So the key message here is what is the hypothesis, which is not a question, it's a statement based on research and observation that defines for that individual how you believe they are going to, uh, the problem that they are facing. And your job there is to demonstrate that you understand the context in which they are going to be operating in. Uh Yeah. So Uh that's the question you have to ask. That's the one question. Okay. So one minute feedback from observers. I'd be really curious. What's that? Hi, good afternoon, everybody. Hello, Marcus. Uh, it's been a while. Quite nice to listen to you guys about, you know, discussing this over. I mean, in my opinion, I don't feel that the manager of the estate agent really cares about training. I think he just wants something as someone to come up and start giving him a song and dance and trying to get his, uh, his employees a bit more bit more motivation for the first week and hopefully try and uh, score one. So I think, but at this point, if he throws enough shit on the wall, something will stick eventually for them to get a, a deal through. So um, I wouldn't really go ahead and push. You know, I'd be go, I'd be more more negative. I'll get the salesperson to approach me to to help me out a bit more internally. I'll ask him the questions for him to get back to me and collaborate with him. So I'll always have a man on the inside. As well, at the same time, I'll ask him to pick up a, pick another salesperson who maybe go through some similar problems like this and get the input. So now you now you have two people inside at least can advocate for you, and even trying to hope possibly get them to convince them to get a meeting done. And once you get in there with the meeting. And you could possibly just tell them as well that it's not your job to do a, sing- a song and dance show. You know, you're here to take people, uh, working companies are serious about achieving results. And just a, a, a silver bullet is not going to work in this situation, especially the economy is going uh, on the downturn. So therefore, you need a reinforcement training on, on top of this and get them to commit to at least a couple of weeks and see, see how the results work out from there. Anyone else got some feedback? Yeah, I can provide some feedback. I think this uh, tomorrow just comes down to the point of giving the customers what they need as opposed to what they want. I think a lot of customers think they know what they want, but in reality, they don't. Um, I think I agree with Will, with Sam, where he said that, you know, the customer is just basically trying to almost tick a box. And you need to obviously look at, you know, how this is going to compromise on your quality and your principles and your values i agree totally with what sam you know um, maybe try to get some advocates or even just basically say stand down and stand your ground saying that this is what i'm willing to do this is the benefits of why i'm going to do that take it or leave it pretty much i'm not averse to the whole idea and we explored that at the beginning but tamara wants to understand the real estate market uh, for investigative purposes So if she wants to engage, she needs to deliver value that causes the director to prick up his ears and say, actually, it's worth talking to her. Otherwise, you're not going to get any further with this. If they're still unresponsive, then Wissam's course of action is absolutely the right course of action because you're playing the medium to long term game. This is all happening in an uh, an unholy hasty rush because you're not being given the opportunity to do the groundwork. 
so that you can deliver a good job. And it's very transactional. But if you're using this to investigate and you believe you can deliver real value to the group, then one of the things I would look at is how you can address this issue and what is currently impossible for them, that if they change their perspective, move their thinking, then it would become possible. And that's what the hypothesis needs to open up the discussion to do. Robin, what's your question? It's great to be here. Thank you uh, for having me on. And so I finally found the hardcore sales people, uh, which is quite interesting. I'm in the arts kind of space. My question is, how can I build a mass audience for my arts micro business on a shoestring budget? That's a cool one. So describe to me what you mean by an arts business. I've got a, a startup which is getting kids to write their own stories online called Creative Writing Club. It's not funded by the Arts Council. It's funded by tickets that people buy, just like you'd buy a, a lesson, uh, a saxophone lesson for your, for your daughter or whatever. So uh, I may drop in and buy a lesson every week. I may work with a little uh, group of other writers. And at the end, after a period of time, then they might be able to have their own book that they've written that's been co-written with the other kids on the on the thing. So that is what I'm up to. So tell me this, which authors of popular children's books have you enlisted as your advocates and allies? Uh, none. <laughs> okay, I think there's your question. These people already have a ready-made audience. Oh, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, and I, I can't remember who it was. I, I keep attributing it to William Bonney, but it wasn't. He was asked, why do you rob banks? And he said, because that's where the money is. You've got to go where your customers are. And the easiest way to get access to an audience is to find people who already have an audience and enlist their help. That is interesting. That's not something I had thought of. The way most people sell is they sell cold and they have to apply an awful lot of expensive brute force. This is typically selling cold and direct and to new customers, where you have an average win rate of around 3%. Well, the question that always goes through my mind is, you because know, I'm fairly contrarian, I'm toying with the idea of uh, branding um, uh, around profane questioning, but I'm told that's not a good word. But the whole idea of looking at the opposite end of the problem. That means 97% of your effort failed. Now, you might make enough money for a few of you to make out like bandits, but most people suffer, and you inflict yourself on 97% of your audience who you should never have bothered with for that moment because it was inappropriate for that time. However, what you can do is you can outsource the misery to third parties and have them go after the cold mm. And they too will get around a 3% win rate. Unfortunately, what will happen is this warm, you know, this partner, you claim you're a partner with this person and partners help each other get better, help them each other to succeed. What you're doing effectively, dumping the problem on them. They're a sort of crutch. Well, it's a get out of sales free card. Get <laughs> out of sales free card. Yeah. Yes. And what you do by doing this also is, about 2 to 4% of your partners will end up generating 40 to 60% of your revenue. 
Parato. When we were researching my book, that was a common standard response. Two to four percent of the partners generate 40 to 60 percent of the revenue. So that made me think, are we recruiting the wrong partners? Because recruitment is great, mm-hmm. but activation is the other problem. So a challenge that you're going to face is recruiting your community, but then getting them to activate and stay active. Okay. And the key mm-hmm. thing here is to understand your buyer's journey. So your audience is made up of two primary people on the buying committee. Well, three, maybe. The parents yeah, it, and the child who has to, uh, to commit to it. Now, if you have a reluctant child on this program, is it obvious? Yeah. But they are they actually they, they, they you know they 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 really like doing it you know they get a book at the end of it it's really cool and it's a fun way of doing it because it's being so created even reluctant sendees hostages being yeah. sent by their tiger parents yeah I mean I've got everyone from I've got kind of genius level sort of uh, chess champions uh, I've got kind of uh, completely dyslexic kids who've written books with it. It's quite an interesting method. It's a bit like you said you're a bit of contrarian, but yeah, it's very different to how you'd learn to write or you'd be taught to write in a school. It's more okay. like a game, basically, like an adventure game online. Lovely. Well, if you're gamifying, I get it. Um, in fact, mm. uh, the Swedish education system, which was designed by the guy who also set up a company called Selami, uh, you definitely want to check them out. C-E-L- I think it's C-E-L-E-M-I. But the guy who set that up basically blueprinted the Scandinavian education system. And in Finland, kids don't start school till they're seven. No kindergartens. So some really interesting stuff there. But check out this company called Selami. Now, let me finish this model. What we also know is that when you get referred a warm introduction, instead of a 3%, about one in 21, it closes roughly one in six, and that's without training. But what's interesting about referrals is that they typically spend two and a half times as much on the first order. They repeat purchase three times as frequently, and they refer four times as often. Now, if you want to build your business on a shoestring, you need to learn how to systematize this. Your next one question is, how do I systematize Warm personal introductions. But we want to put it on steroids. Tell me this. Name me one person, first name only, that you trust in business above all others. Nicholas. Okay. So if Nicholas said to you, Robin, you need to speak to Marcus, what is the probability you would speak to Marcus? 100%. And if Marcus brought you something that was timely, relevant, valuable, affordable, and on point with your plan... What's the probability you would buy from Marcus? Very, very high. On a scale of one to 10? Nine, unless I was too skinned to be able to afford it. No, no, it's affordable. Okay. Yeah, well, 10, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And would you go to market and speak to anybody else to try and get two or three other quotes? I like to check out the lay of the land. So I might, but probably I would have already kind of been a bit aware of the space around it. Okay, Um, so you'd be doing that as a sanity check. You've got to, yeah, yeah, negative check stuff. Okay, and then, but you see how that process works. We've gone to a 90% close rate, and it's mine to lose. All I've got to do is not fuck it up. 
that's right. I'd be looking for reasons not to go ahead, really, right. rather than the okay. other way around. And this is where your community comes in. Community is hot introductions where people are saying, this is the bee's knees. Come and join me. And they then tell other people. So it's really yours to lose. So the key question you're going to take away from today is how do I create it? the conditions that are so compelling that my current customers want to bring their friends? Well, that is very interesting. Just as a general thing, and this is like a bit of a, a bit of a swivel, but would would you be looking for specifics on that, Marcus? You know, should I like, okay, I'm gonna do this offer or that offer? Or would you be thinking about like, should I be looking at the big, the big stuff, like the the the, the high-level stuff? Whose opinion matters the most? Whose opinion? Well, I guess the customer's opinion, really, because they're gonna buy. So don't yeah. start from what offer you're going to make. Right. It's about what the job to be done is that the customer is trying to accomplish. Right. So what is the job to be done that the parent is trying to accomplish? What is the job to be done that the child wishes to accomplish? How can you build a bridge based on the common ground between them and you? What is the common ground? Yeah. And then how do you build your story from there? What are the narratives? What are the narratives that they're running? What are it's the, the, it's the hero's journey, Marcus. It's, of course uh, <laughs> it's the hero's journey, Marcus. It's always. It's always the hero's journey, but they have to Ilgamesh. be the hero. <laughs> like, but they have to be the hero in their story. You are of the course. guy. No, they are, because they're kind of the people who are writing the book themselves. Right. Right, 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 right. But in your sales process at the moment, everything has been about you trying to get your needs met first. Yes. It's not about that. The moment you make it about you, you become an obstacle to the sale. So, so you're telling me, Marcus, you're telling me it's not all about me? Yeah, funnily enough. <laughs> you sound like, uh, <laughs> sound just, like my better half. Be absolutely clear. Well, <laughs> think about this. Are, are you familiar with something called transactional analysis, TA? No, I thought that was okay. a territorial. You've probably heard of parent, adult, child, haven't you? As yeah. a concept. Right. Okay. Well, that's a TA concept, transaction analysis concept. In you, the theory goes that you have a parent who mm. gives and permissions and non permissions, an adult who is a bit like Mr. Spock. For those of you who are, you know who Mr. Spock is, basically a computer, a bit like data from Star Trek. And for yes. those who are still basically a soulless, uh, basically Elon Musk when he's on stage, there's no emotion. So the adult and then the child, and the child is the seat of emotion. And the way decision-making works is the child ego state turns to the parent and says, dad, dad, can I have one? And the parent either says yes or no. Mm. If it says no, it goes back and forth, back and forth until one of them gives up. Or the child comes back with another shiny object for permission. If the parent gives permission, turns to the adult and says, go and find me evidence to justify this decision, brackets, emotional decision. When it comes back with the evidence, the parent either gives assent or says no. If it gives assent, it has to confirm that, and then the child gets its need met. Now, bear in mind, that's you. On top of you, there are your parents, and on top of them, their parents. Would it make sense to remove that level of fuckery and complexity out of the equation completely 
by not making anything about you, because the second it's about you, you represent a threat to their limbic system, and they will resist. And that's why you end up with stores and deals that go south. What branch of uh, psychology does that come from uh, there? It's called transactional analysis. It's transactional analysis. You'll have heard of Games People Play. That's probably the most famous book by Eric Byrne. Uh, Okay. Well, thank you so much for your input today. Fascinating. uh, And thank you for letting me be a part of it. My pleasure. Excellent. I would love to um, get some feedback in terms of the questioning. What are you guys learning about the questioning? Because today is as much about giving back that stuff. And if any of you are interested, by the way, I've put together a framework to understand how to do this yourself. So if this is something that you're a skill that you'd like to develop, then make sure you put your email, private direct message me in the message in the chat, meeting chat. And if you're interested in that, we can talk about it separately at the end. But I'm really interested in what you're learning about the questioning. What was it like on being on the receiving end, Robin? It was great. I mean, but I did kind of get the feeling it would be uh, a bit of a brutal process. But actually, uh, it was a lot. You were a lot more gentle uh, with it than I thought it might have been. <laughs> I thought you were going to ask me, "Why do you want to grow a micro business? Why is it a micro business?" You know, like kind of. But no, very all very interesting stuff. And of course, it should be about the customer, the user. I'm totally down with that. The reader, you know, if it's a book, I'm always telling the kids, you know, now, if you were the reader, what would you like to happen next? Do you want to be told that now or should it, you know, something else happen? So, yeah, totally. It is all about telling a story. Mm. Remember, all of this is going on in the buyer's brain. And the buyer's brain is basically locked in a black box that's completely devoid of any contact with the outside world other than our senses. And it's trying to make sense of the world because it's got to react. Uh, It's got to respond. It's got to keep you alive. And it's trying to do this all the time. So we live in this story. If you can enter that story, and this is, uh, Tamara, this is for you as well. If you can enter the director's narrative, the story they are running in their head, you've got a massive opportunity to just run with that. Do not make it about you. Just let it run. Let just tap into the conversations they're already having. AI has become very prominent across all industries and now being used for decision-making purposes. I understand that AI relies on prehistoric data and taking into account that times have drastically changed, especially in the last decade. And we're talking about women and um, yeah. women and ethnic minorities in leadership roles. How can us, I, as a small business leader with limited funds, reputation, and brand brand awareness, convince my customers to trust my judgment and experience over what they're being informed by AI tech? For example, ChatGPT. Okay, why does it have to be either or? Why can't you do both? Because um, my customers are coming to me and basically saying, "We need leads. We need leads. You know, lead generation, lead generation." And I'm saying to you guys, guys, that's crap. You know, what you need to do, you need to look at how you can actually differentiate yourself, create yourself a niche, create yourself a specialism, and actually improve your conversion rate. Right. Okay. So this has got nothing to do with AI. This has got uh, to back down to the job to be done that they're really coming to you for. So the rule is the problem they bring you is never the real problem. And to get to the real problem, you have to ask them why three or more times. So why are they telling you that they want leads? 
I think obviously there is a pressure from the market. They're looking at what their competitors are doing. They're looking at seeing what the market trends and they're basically saying, okay, why invest my time in training, upskilling my team when I can just throw more shit at the wall and hope that something sticks? Okay, but what's the real outcome that they want? Revenue. Because? For sustainability, to survive. Okay, well, it, again, where are they in their business life cycle? Are they in startup? Are they in continuation? Are they in growth or hypergrowth? Are they in turnaround? Are they in recovery? Okay, so most of my, my, my businesses or the people I deal with are entrepreneurs, so they're either just starting out and looking for market traction or they're in their hypergrowth phase and are kind of in the process of converting from becoming a startup or a market entry player to a, a kind of a small enterprise. Okay. So what are the unintended consequences of adding more leads to the top of the funnel at, at each of those stages in the business's life cycle? They're potentially damaging their brand, you know what I mean? Or any, you know, I mean, I know at the startups at the initial stage, they don't have really have a brand. But um, I'm basically saying if you have to spam 10,000 people to get five leads, then you're not really doing something right. I'm 100% with you. You're not going to find me fighting you on that at all. Um, but and- how do you convince them when, when the rest of the market, they're feeling the pressure from the rest of the market, okay, where well, everybody else is doing this, so I need to follow the trend? I, I would ask them some questions around their data, which uh, they, they probably do track things like conversion rates on their digital ad campaigns, don't they? Or are they not? Not a startup level. They're looking. They're, okay. they, they, their KPIs are very much self-made. They're looking at you know, okay, money going in and return investment out. Okay, so you're engaging with the uh, with the founder, yeah. Yep. And why did the founder set that business up? Most of the time, um, I mean, bearing in mind we're dealing with a lot of post-COVID companies, so. Most of the time is that basically they, they're changing personal values. They basically decided they didn't want to be working for a company anymore. They wanted to do their own thing and, you know, basically set up their own business. So basically on the pursuit of happiness. There's a shift in values and they're looking to have a more satisfying life. Precisely. And your other group? I would have thought it's roughly the same thing. I mean, um, they basically, they have a group maybe pre-COVID, so they're more thinking about they had a, there's a niche in the market and they have a solution which can fill that gap. But COVID has come and changed that whole, that whole market now. So now their attention has shifted and they're really looking at what the competitors are doing. What does the business that they intend to build look like when you sat down with them and have them describe the business that they intend to become in three years' time. Are they able to describe it, define it? So, okay, I'll give you an example. So I had a, a, a company come to me the other day, and they have basically created an omni-channel engagement solution. So basically this solution can, I like, like the, the, um, the LinkedIn automated solutions. They can do LinkedIn, Facebook, 
Instagram, Twitter, any of these platforms. So it's one algorithm and it does all the platforms. Yeah. I said, this is brilliant. But he says his vision is I want to target the top big players. I'm like, well, okay, you've got no market traction, you've got no revenue, you've got you've got a limited budget. If you go for these guys, there's gonna be a long sales cycle. This is gonna be very, very challenging. Go for the smaller fish first, you know what I mean? And then build up your traction. Build your You're not gonna like the question you need to eventually get to. What's the question I need to eventually to get to? Leon, do you want this to work? Or whoever the other person is. At a point like this, it would be to create enough contrast so that they begin to doubt their current direction. And in order to do that, a pattern interrupt of some sort, like, Leon, how important is it that this works? But then am I not selling fear? Which is... No, no. How important is it that this works? Okay. Play with me, otherwise this is going to take forever. Yeah, 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 sorry, okay. Yeah, it, it, it's very important. It's my life stream. Yeah, it's my... Okay. It's everything to me. Would it make sense to map out a clear path as to how you're going to make that happen and then decide where you're going to invest your resources rather than invest your resources and then put a plan together after the fact? Yes, of, of, of course. <laughs> so Why don't we do like that, that then? <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's interesting. I'll, I'll try that approach. Yeah. Right, thank you. The key is to remember that there's this fantastic model called the winner's triangle. Most people operate out of something called the drama triangle. The drama triangle is three points that describe every broken, dissatisfying, dysfunctional relationship you can or will ever have. The victim is the point at the bottom. Why me? It's so unfair. This always happens. And their favorite plea, save me, help me. Now, other victims love victims because they can do a pity party and they can mm. compare scars. Persecutors love a good victim because they can bully them. And rescuers love a good victim because they can rescue them. They can help without boundaries or permission. Now, Persecutors are normally perceived as being the worst type of manager, but I see the rescuer because the persecutor, you know what you're dealing with, an asshole. So get out quickly, keep your head down, do what you can not to be noticed. That's frustrating, but a rescuer helps without boundaries or permission. And salespeople have a tendency to help without boundaries or permission. And as a result, they get stuck in this free consulting cycle, and then they become resentful, and then they become victims, and then they turn into persecutors. And they go round and round and round this miserable cycle. If you operate from the winner's triangle, instead of being a victim, you're vulnerable. Instead of being a persecutor, you're assertive. And instead of being a rescuer, you're nurturing or empathic. In that, you saw what I did, Leon. Um, it was, you know, how important is this that it works? Okay. Would it make sense? But, you know, I'm going assertive. I'm not being violently assertive, but I'm asserting something and I'm nurturing him through the process. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And by getting permission in that way, I'm enlisting him. What I don't want to do is ever try to force them because a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. I want allies. I want them to see me as an ally. I want them to want to refer me. I want you lot to walk away from this absolutely convinced that when someone says, yeah, I'm really struggling to get the right question, or I need to, I'm stuck, I can't, I just can't work it out, 
the first thing that comes out of your mouth is my name. Yeah. Yeah. There's a very, very interesting perspective because I've basically always taken the, the view of like, look, give customers what they need as opposed to what they want. So me and the customers may, may be at, at loggerheads and we may be you're fighting, but the one thing, and even if they leave my portfolio, the one thing they can't say that I didn't help them to achieve their goal. Do you know what I mean? They might hate me for the way I did it. Do you know what but I mean? But the, the one the thing they can't here, say is I didn't help, you know? The key here is to recognize that they have outcomes that they rent. Buyers do not buy your product or service outright ever. They rent it. And they only rent it for as long as it's fit for purpose. Now, our job is to enlist them as customers, to recruit them rather than to try and sell to them. This is why I have a real beef about training per se, because training is something you tend to do to dogs. Learning is what human beings should be doing. And learning is a, an active process. We need to enlist our customers in this process through contracting with them and helping them see the common ground. And that's where I think your approach may benefit from looking for the common ground so that you can build the bridge. You want them to be your customer because you know you can help them. They want the outcome, but what we have to do is help them see the connection between what we can offer and how they can get to that outcome. And we have to be their guide. And sometimes I think, yeah, absolutely. It's easier to fool people than to convince them that they have been fooled. And they have to come up with the data because buyers do not argue with their own information. If they've said it's the case, if you can find ways of finding that common ground, you're onto a winning, winning wicket. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. That sounds great. Thank you. I'll, 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 Thank I'll you. let my, my brain think about that. Thank you. Good stuff. Thank you. So feedback, thoughts, anyone? Yeah, can I use the opportunity to just ask this question? I mean, it's probably going to be related to everyone since we're talking about questioning. The yep. issue that I have been experiencing for months now is I have this nagging feeling that my questions are way too elaborate and that they are confusing people more than they're clarifying to them what they need to do. You know, what you were asking me, for example, when I tried that out on the prospect, they look completely dumbfounded. They have no idea what I'm asking them. They have never given any thought about it. They have no idea what to reply to me. And they just sort of, you know, I don't have a feeling I'm moving forward. You know, I, I don't have a feeling I'm moving anywhere. You know, I'm moving them in any direction, actually. Okay. So if it's not working, ask them. Why not? I think my question may have been too confusing. Would you like me to break it down? Okay. So in parts and do it in pieces. But I mean, it's good practice. Ask one question and have them answer it. Then ask the next question and have them answer it. When you're contracting, ask one question at a time and get agreement. Because if you haven't got agreement, all you have is a shopping list. And remember, throughout the sales process, what we're doing is we're getting little agreement, little agreement, little agreement. And by the time you're done, it could be dozens or hundreds or thousands of little agreements. If you're selling something complex, what you don't want is to have to then negotiate a big agreement at the end. That's what we're trying to prevent. Mm, so I agree. If, if your questions aren't working, just ask them. Have I confused you? I'm so sorry. 
Let me break it down and just break it down into pieces. No, no, it's just finding the right balance between asking questions, of course, not to sign a sound interrogatory. And on the other hand, you know, not having them being fed up with all those 20 questions game, you know, okay, I've been very patient answering all those questions. Are you going to tell me what this is all about? Or do we need to do, you know, five more meetings? Okay. Well, again, you can have conversations with people and elicit good information by not asking the direct question. And uh, so, again, one of the things I would do is start looking at customer interview style questions Uh that generate unbiased responses. So there's a very good book called The Mom Test, which I'd recommend. Uh And I would also look at uh, something called street epistemology, which is about creating doubt in someone's mind about a belief. Very powerful techniques, very powerful strategies, but you have to come with them, uh, come at them with the right intent. Definitely simplify your questions. If you're not getting the reaction that you want and you're not getting the answers you want, it's you. So modify it. Someone else? We've got two more to do. I would like to add to the this conversation. There was an interesting post from the head of AI of Toyota about how they explain or simplified terms or complex jargon. I'll share the post with Tamara and you, Marcus, and you can share it across the group. It's an interesting post. So it's about being more conversational because when they ask questions about a complex topic that people don't understand, simplifying it and making it more explainable that uh, you know anyone can understand that is going to be a two-way conversation and it's going to drive more results is what we are talking about. If you have a conversation with the AI and ask it stuff, it will come back with stuff that you're not familiar with, and then you interrogate that. And, no, no, not, not with the AI, with the person. I was talking to the head of AI at Toyota. Ah, right, okay. But so it, he it, said, works, it works the same with human beings as it does with the AI, that if you ask it good questions and you then get direction to go somewhere else, um, it gives you an opportunity to broaden your understanding. And that's what I think the whole part of uh, conversational selling is about. It's helping the customer to understand what their real situation is and then to help them to understand how they got there and open their mind to new possibilities. And this is where questioning is really powerful because your questioning should feed off their responses and help them to advance their understanding, either of the causes of their problem or move them towards a decision that they can live with. Same thing when you're using the AI, treat it in the same way, and then it will come back with really, really powerful responses. I've learned so much this way. A few months ago, I changed the way I used to do the selling. I start from the basics and read a couple of well-known people in the selling who Benjamin and some other people who I started watching the content and I changed my approach, uh, you know, started with the questions and all that stuff. So what exactly happened is now there are the new clients who we are trying to onboard and there are existing clients who we have already and we all try to increase the business with them. So what exactly happened, the approach is kind of working on the existing clients very well because they are dealing with us already. And with the new clients, what happened exactly is, I learned this one fact that you cannot run after every other person who comes up and inquires about your business. Like not every 
person you can sell to. They are the right type of people who are right fit for your business and services. So what exactly happens is I just get told a lot of times, and usually the majority of the time is that you may need to change the approach because we do not used to sell like this. And, you know, there's a block on revenue on the onboarding end and you're dealing good with the existing client, but you need to change your style a bit and go with the old-fashioned way of selling. So I'm kind of having trouble here. I don't know if, if it's a marketing problem that we're dealing with because we're not able to attract. Am I understanding you correctly that You've modified your approach. It's working well with onboarding your existing customers and working with them. With the new customers, you struggle. Yeah, I struggle because sometimes even if I have a good question sequence and I get to the point, they like talking and they start trusting. And then somehow I just get uh, lost in the middle of nowhere. Like I just end up... So do you have a written pre-call plan? Not usually because there's no... uh, Cold calling happening. It's just uh, usually I get inquiries in the chat, and if they want to go over the call, so I just apply this technique. Okay. Uh, I mean, okay. what would you like to have happen? How how do you open the conversation? Typically, when we have a scheduled call, uh, they inquire about they want some kind of services. So I just inquire about what exactly you require in that specific service. For example, you need marketing for your small brand and you need content marketing. So what exactly, why exactly do you need content marketing? Because there are other avenues of marketing. And then um, they, you're trying to get into bed before they've even said hello. You've got to slow down. So do you play chess? Yeah. Kind of okay. Tell me this. When is the game of chess won? In the opening moves or the closing moves? Definitely in the middle of two closing moves. That's where the game is won. Okay, where's it really won? When you're grandmaster level, where is the game really won? Well, the way you open, that's it. Absolutely. Okay, and this is no different. What I want you to recognize is how you set the opening of the call matters in terms of how it ends up. Okay, so when someone is approaching you on a chat or whatever, what is their intent? In fact, what's their motive? Let's start with that. When they contact you, what is the motive behind contacting you? Is it to gather information? Is it to help them move towards a decision? Or is it to help them make a purchase? 70% of the time, their intent is to gather the information because they've been talking to other people already. That's what they normally come with. Fantastic. So... Help me understand something. Let's pretend we wave a magic wand and it's the end of this conversation. What do you need to have happened by the end? What information do you need to have gathered for you to consider this a really successful use of your time? And what are they going to say to that? I tried a couple of times asking just a part of the question, which is like, what would you like to have happen by the end of this conversation? And they just say like, oh, I just uh, want to gather the information. But And I say like, okay, they are just, some of the time they're very clear with their intent. They're just looking at exploring the things and blah, 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 all this. Now, the problem is, is if they are very clear, upfront and blunt and honest, they just want to explore or they just want to look further into the things and make a decision. So what happened is that then I moved the conversation along the way because I cannot just really waste my time if somebody wants to gather information. 
when you have one of those inbound leads, what is your intent going into it? Uh, my intent is to find out what exactly they need help with or what exactly are they looking for. Because my now my intent is to know that are they are just going to gather information or they won't really help you do something. Okay. Because these are two different things. Because people, I have to understand, misunderstand their intent. Typically, when people are looking around or they ask for a proposal or a quote, a great mm. question to ask is, so Maraj, tell me, where, where are you in your decision-making cycle? H- have you decided that you really need to find a solution to a problem and you don't quite you can't quite put your finger on how or what, and you're gathering information. Have you decided on a solution, and now what you're looking for is that you're exploring what options you have available to you? Or have you got to the point where you're deciding between a handful of vendors which one is best suited to serve your needs? Which is it with you? No, no, me. Yeah? Because if you ask that question... It's non-threatening, and it helps you to understand exactly what it is that they're looking for. Because if you go into a call, it still feels like you're trying to make a quota, okay? And their limbic system, their primitive brain, bear in mind, you are not clever enough or a good enough actor to be able to override their evolutionary hardwiring for the last three billion years, okay? Don't think yourself that good because you ain't. Uh, You might get away with it occasionally, but by and large, you won't. Okay. Now, net result of all of this, we need to put their mind at ease. What buyers fear are salespeople because they are about to make a decision. They don't want to look stupid. Yeah. And what they really want is leadership and a safe pair of hands. If they're inviting a conversation with a salesperson, what they don't want is pressure, coercion, manipulation, omission, lying. Yeah? Okay. This is what they get from everyone else. Because everyone else is playing the numbers game. Okay. But if we can get inside that buyer's mind and the narrative that they are running. So something along the lines of, Maras, tell me this. Let's pretend you've had the product installed and you've been using it for six to 12 months. What's good about that? What's good about that? Play it. What would they say? They're going to say that I would be more than happy. And it, because? It would be very because uh, what will it give you? Two or three, yeah, two or three things they're going to say is the good thing about this, it saves me time. I made the right decision. It doesn't feel like that I made the wrong choice because mostly there are two reasons why people are happy about a purchase because they're emotionally happy or it makes sense for them. Let's just wind it back a little bit. What we're trying to do is have the customer paint the picture of what that better future looks like. The brain does not differentiate between memory and imagination. What we've now done is created an association with them having made a good decision It's successful, and they're getting the value they intended. How much better is that than you trying to push the product on? So it's about setting their mind in the right place. I'm actually employed, currently employed in the company, and uh, I'm really, really thinking about doing 
some coaching and particularly around sales. I've been doing sales for all my life. I'm 56, soon 57. Uh, and uh, on Sunday. What? I was 56 on Sunday. Okay, well, I'm from 67. So you were, you're from 68. No, 67. <laughs> oh, 67 too, right. <laughs> exactly. So basically, vintage. I, I've been very, very uh, motivated since I listened to someone you probably know, since he mentioned you today on LinkedIn. And this is how I'm, I heard about you. It's Benjamin Dennehy, who mentioned you as the GOAT of coaching and whatever. That's just down to my body odor, I think. Well, actually, it, I think he's right from what I've heard and seen so far. But um, I, I don't know where to start, and I would like to find a niche. I don't want to go everywhere and, and play the, game, the numbers game. I want to go and talk to the kind of companies, the kind of businesses that are, according to your experience, maybe the most inclined to listen to this, to, to have the most needs, the most problems. Again, it really does depend. When you're segmenting your market, often it makes the most sense to look where no one else is looking. So how often do we look for unmet need, unidentified demand, non-customers, customers who could be customers in adjacent markets, but no one is playing? Leon, great example of this is how many people try to open up the UK and Germany and Europe, and they try and open up the USA when there are 153 African, Asian, South American countries, less or whatever it is uh, in Europe and Canada. And there are all those uh, countries where there is next to no competition. If any of you are thinking about expanding into international markets, check out Zach Selch's resources. He's got 112 different country packs. I, I, I wrote that down already. I heard you mention the, him in another video uh, when you were invited by the two guys. I don't remember. Uh, I can't remember the name of the po podcast. Two young guys who, who invited also Benjamin Dennehy. Anyway, I live in France. I'm not planning on going abroad right now. But to put it, I mean, to make it short, I've always been like a magnet to people to seek for advice. And I'm probably like the, the typical nurturer that you described earlier. I, I, even if I'm not asked, I will go to people and give them advice. And sometimes my, my, wife, go, my wife goes crazy because she says, he didn't that's ask rescuing. you anything. Yeah, that's rescuing, <laughs> not nurturing. Ex exactly. So I'm the typical rescuer, but I, I thought maybe I should make a little money with that because the advices I give usually are appreciated and they really thank me. I don't know where to start and I don't want to waste will, my time. I, I, this is a very serious question. And if you haven't read a book by Alfie Cohn, K-O-H-N, called Punished by Rewards, it's definitely worth reading. My question is, if you turn it into a business where money is involved, will it take the joy out of the exercise because it turns it from play into work? What do you mean exactly? If you monetize something that you love to do, sometimes it turns it from play into work, which yeah. then takes the luster out of it. What is it about the coaching of other people that you love 
that you, you causes you to do it for free? If I had to give you one answer right now, it would probably uh, see and, and hear what they, they feel and how it resonate, resonates for them. To, to look right. at their face and, and, and see the emotion of what I, of what I say gives them, it, it's really rewarding. What is rewarding about that? What's good about that for you? The feeling it generates on them. On them? Or on you? I'm interested in your, your feelings. First. Oh, me, my feelings. To be the witness, it's like giving a gift. Love. Giving a present to someone. And you see what, the emotion, the, the pleasure they have, and it gives me pleasure. Probably love. even more than them. Absolutely. And uh, as social primates, there's no surprise there. Yeah? We're exactly. Not that, we haven't evolved that much in the last quarter of a million, half a million, million Especially years. Especially me. Especially me. Um, and if you have children, sorry, if you haven't got children, I you speak of your evolutionary line. If you do, and they're not grand, uh, they haven't produced their own, they are the peak of your evolutionary line. Does that give you hope for the future is the big question. <laughs> so um, when we think about our customer, our customer is a living, breathing human being who occupies a space. They're running this narrative, a story about their place in the world, what's fair, what's not. And there comes a point where they reach out for help or they hit a struggling moment, a moment of peril. Our job as a seller is to find those moments of peril, those struggling moments, and meet them where they're going to be. And the problem I see that most sellers have is that they tend to try and meet the buyer where they wish they were. And so coercion and pressure. No, 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 no. I mean, you know, I've I've really uh, thought and and really understood the notion that Benjamin Dennehy says he gives the image of a doctor who specialized in in the in the flu, for instance, and his business is not to qualify but to disqualify. And if he finds someone with the symptoms, well, then it would be very easy to get an appointment. According to the method uh, he applies. And this method, to me, is re- really makes sense, for, first of all. As a salesperson, it's really hard to be detached from the outcome, but I, I'm working on it. Okay. I've been working well, on I it. I mean, for, there for is a really now. simple way to be detached from the outcome, which is? Yes. Well, how, how do you detach yourself from the outcome? It's an in- intellectual process. Absolutely, but when you're struggling and you're under pressure, well, like like, like Benjamin says, you you don't lose what you never had. Good. Okay, so that's a healthy mindset. But we also prospect for choice, and our job is to prospect further out into the pipeline, not focus on the short term. So often, it's really about having a list of a dream twenty, maybe. And Maraj, this is something that you might want to look at as well. So come up with a list of a dream 20 list of accounts that over the next two years, if you could win those as accounts, any one of them, you'd be a company hero, but you're going to go for eight to 12 of them. And over the next two years, your job is to map out those organizations, identify the cast of characters, track where they are in their buying journey so that you can meet them during the passive looking phase and be timely, be relevant, 
be valuable and not sell. Because over two years, our objective has to be to work out the answer to this one question. When they move into active looking, how can I be in pole position? Now, if you can make that happen, and over six to 12 months, those medium-term prospects will become your short-term prospects. But you will have seven to 12 to 20 points of contact. You will have spoken to them multiple times without ever trying to sell to them. And you're asking them clever questions, judicious questions, timely questions, and you're feeding them the information they need. Because in passive looking, what they're trying to do is learn how. When they move into active looking, they're exploring what their options are. If you have set the scene, there is something called primacy and recency. We want to be first and last. So we want to be first in their mind by having done the spade work beforehand. And then we want to offer them the last look so they can make a decision at the end. So one of my favorite questions is, Pascal, uh, how many other organizations are you going to speak to? Great. When do you expect that process to be done? Wonderful. Do you mind if we take the last position? They can't tell you we've got to talk to everyone else. So you've neutralized that objection up front. That makes sense? I totally understand what you're saying. But there's one thing. Before you get to those 20 targets, ideal targets, don't you have to play the numbers game? How do you target them? You need to start by understanding what it is that what's the job that you can help them get done or what part you can play in helping them to execute the job to be done. If you understand your customer's job to be done, is it to solve a problem in a particular way for a particular set of customers? Is it to make the valuation target for the investors? Is it to create as much money as possible in order that the owner can go off on holiday uh, or buy something? What's the job that the business is there to do? What do the individuals within that uh, organization do in terms of executing their part in that job to be done? If you can understand that, then you can start working those people, those relationships over time, and you can start to see the interplay. Because the reality is that most organizations don't know how to buy whatever it is we are selling because we sell it every day and they buy it once in a blue moon, if not for the first time. And they are coming to us for leadership and a safe pair of hands because they do not want to make a bad decision. Because the decisions that they have to make, they have to be able to live with. And most salespeople will sell them anything and then, because they do a drive-by shooting, they sell and run. Yeah. So we can't do that. If we want to differentiate and deliver real value so that they bring their wealthy friends, remember we earlier on we were talking about you know, getting referred hot. Of course. Right. Well, I want a 90% close rate so I don't have to prospect. If I have two meetings a day, odds are I'm going to close somewhere between five and eight of those over the course of a week. It's probably too much. But we'll start there and then we can tone it down. But if I'm doing it cold, I have to go through a hundred of them to get three. Uh. So the question we have to ask ourselves is how do we do less but better on purpose without any reduction in impact or value? That's a crucial question. I would love some raw, unvarnished feedback. 
I've got two questions for you. The first question is this, and please write it in the chat. The first question is, on a scale of one to seven, one being it was awful, seven being it absolutely met the brief, which was to demonstrate the power of effective questioning in a very short space of time, could you give it a score? Okay, do it publicly, privately, really don't care. And my next question is, would you like to know how I ask questions? If you would, put your email in the chat and then I will send you um, a follow-up because we've hit time and I don't want to overstay my welcome. In the meantime, any questions, any thoughts, you can all beetle off if you'd like to, but I'm here to answer some questions. Those of you who are listening on the recording, if you've enjoyed this, please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Um, and if you're interested in learning how I ask questions, then please send me an email, marcus at laughs-last.com, or DM me on LinkedIn. Uh, if we're not connected, feel free to connect. Where can we find your podcast? It's called The Inquisitor with Marcus Kauke. And The Inquisitor is all one word because some other bugger got there first. Is it, is it on YouTube or just audio? Um, it was on YouTube, but when I left Sandra, I had to take stuff down and whatever. But it's on Podbean, Apple, Google, pretty much everywhere. And um, any other questions? Any feedback? Is there a place where we can ever hear you do a live call with a prospect? Because I think it's great hearing simulation. Is there ever an opportunity to hear you do it for real with somebody that you're trying to sell to? No, because that's between them. I mean, I'd have to get their permissions and everything else. Hey, Marcus, do you think it might be beneficial that um, while you're getting the people to actually to ask you their questions, that you can respond with your one question, you actually get them to be more concise with their questions? So basically, almost practice while doing that's what I have. Uh, one of the parts of my training program is something called a practice lab. And we practice moments in the sale. And then we practice them in front of live customers very often as well. So I bring my network in. So if you sell to CMOs or CROs or founders or investors, I'll bring those folks in. And you can practice in front of them and they will give you raw, unvarnished feedback immediately in context. And then you practice again and you go away and practice again, practice again, practice again until you perfect it. And because you're not screwing up the wholesale, you're just screwing up little bits of it. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the key is to be able to um, be able to apply it in practice in the field. Mm. This is why training doesn't work, because training is fixated of the people who commission training are fixated on retention and completion rates. What bloody use is that if they don't use it in practice? Because I've seen so many training courses. Now, I mean, 15 years ago, the global spend was 265 billion. So you can imagine how much it is now. It's probably near 800 billion. And almost all of that is wasted because mm. the people who get trained don't apply it. That's down to, you know, human retention, knowledge retention, isn't it? No, it's not. You know? It's down to lack of practice in context. Because when you practice the stuff, people remember it and then they can apply it. Because what we teach is the building blocks. I don't ever teach technique for that reason. Because if you teach technique, people will use it, but they won't have learned the context that came up with it. So you need to learn to practice it in different contexts so that when you face that moment, you can pull the building blocks together and then you get the result that you want. That's what you pay for when you pay for training.
Yeah, definitely. I think so. I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I think one of the things that we do, I, I don't do training that often. Now I'm really cheap, so I have to twist my arm to do it. But, uh, you know, it's really when I do it, I really want it interactive to make sure it's more of a workshop as opposed to me just sitting yeah. there delivering training because that just really annoys me. Absolutely. I mean, you know, having a talking head is great if you want to put people to sleep and never see it apply. <laughs> it's a great way for a trainer to make a living being an entertainer and i've seen that happen i've been guilty of it in the past because i thought that worked but it doesn't no what works is people getting scar tissue and training their brain repeatedly over and over and over again in different contexts and different pressure at different times when they're feeling different and it's got to be uh simulate real life so when real life occurs they can just call on it I, I've got. I, I was doing a, a case study with a client. He's increased his income from seventeen thousand when I first started coaching him to one hundred and seventy in five years. That's through asking questions and taking his time and being customer focused and practicing constantly. The thing that the habit he took was he and four or five of the others formulated a buddy group, which I always encourage in the, uh, the learning program. And they're still going five, six years later. They hold each other to account, do role plays at least once a week. They have daily conversations, kicking each other's ass. That's reinforcement. Yeah, no, I totally totally agree. Um, I mean, since I met you last year, I mean, I've gone through the thing where I actually write an email and I actually check it two, three times and make it (laughs) concise, make it more concise, get to the point, get to the point, boom, 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 boom. Yeah. It's just because, yeah. Take out all the fluff. Yeah. (laughs) So, look, guys, we need to wrap up. This has been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for your feedback. For those of you who've emailed, I will get uh, in touch with you about the follow-on program. I'm looking at pricing it around 250 quid. It's not meant to be uh, painful, um, and it is a teaser to try and tease you on to my bigger programs. Let's not beat around the bush. (laughs) I have a monthly program for 350 quid uh, where you get two learning sessions and 48 individual thought labs uh, that force you to think critically about stuff that you deal with. And I have coaching packages as well. You're extremely welcome to talk to me about any of those. If you do need any help, please reach out. This is going to be a really tough period the next three, four years. We need to support each other. I will do everything I can to support you guys. In the meantime, stay safe. Happy selling.